Welcome to the Brand the Interpreter podcast. I am your host, Mireya Perez, and this platform is dedicated to sharing the stories of language professionals, that is, the interpreters and translators from around the world. This show aims to highlight not just the profession, but mainly the people behind the amazing work. These are your stories about our profession, and this is the Brand the Interpreter podcast. Welcome back, language professionals from around the world, to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host, and today I'm excited to announce a brand new feature. Through a paid subscription, you are now able to access premium podcast content. Wow, I know, right? The premium content is only available to those that subscribe, but it allows us the opportunity to go a little bit deeper with some of these conversations on the podcast. So every month, in addition to the regular episodes, premium subscribers will also get bonus episodes. This is content exclusively only for premium subscribers. This may be listener Q&As or follow-up conversations or extra resources and the like, just to go a bit deeper into some of the conversations that we have here on the show. So if you're interested, head on over to the episode notes and click the link for more details. All right, and now on with the show. As a second-generation ASL interpreter, Sarah Baker passionately provides equal access for the deaf and hard-of-hearing community. Being raised bilingual, she never thought about interpreting as her career. However, after completing a bachelor's degree in English from Bob Jones University and completing a three-year interpreting internship at the university, she began freelance interpreting in South Carolina. Since achieving NIC certification from Registry of Interpreters for the Deaf, she enjoys presenting workshops and mentoring interpreters both locally and nationwide. For the past 10 years, Sarah has interpreted at college lectures, platform presentations, medical procedures, job interviews, and orientations, VRS, VRI, and theatrical productions, as well as several weddings and funerals. Her career highlights include interpreting for concerts on stage and televised presidential campaigns. Promoted to interpreter recruiter for a VRS company in 2017, Sarah interviewed dozens of ASL interpreters per week for staff interpreter and contract positions and traveled coast to coast representing her company at national and regional conferences. She has served two boards on the board of directors of South Carolina's RID chapter and in 2020, Sarah co-founded ASL OWL, a 5013C nonprofit organization focused on mentorship and professional development, and began serving as their board of directors president, authoring the well known Knock Out the NIC workshop series and providing one on one mentorship. Sarah has led 26 ASL interpreters to achieve national certification thus far. Presently, Sarah works for a Corby as the Associate Director of ASL Services, leading a Corby's new ASL interpreting department and managing hundreds of a Corby ASL interpreters nationwide. So, without further ado, please welcome Sarah Baker to the show. Please note that the descriptions referred to in this program apply to certain groups within the deaf community and are not meant to define the entire population at large. Sarah, welcome to the show. So glad that you're here today with us. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. 
I'm happy that we get to talk a little bit more about this specific topic and uh, that you're here to enlighten us on a lot of things that I'm sure the hearing community, which that includes me, as we're just needing to learn. So um, I'm happy for today's conversation and I'm happy that that you're here uh, willing to share your story and a little bit more about ASL. So how about we get started? Sure, let's do it. Let's first get to know Sarah Baker a little bit more. Sarah, so if you wouldn't mind just kind of taking us a little bit back in time and sharing with us where you grew up and what a fond childhood memory is. Sure. Let's see. My story is a bit different from many ASL interpreters that are out in the field today. I am actually a second generation interpreter. So my mother has been interpreting for about 35 years. Because of that, I grew up in a bilingual community where I was around deaf and hard of hearing people my entire life. Before I could start, start speaking English, she was already teaching me ASL. And so from a very young age, I was already signing. And that was just a part of my world. So as far as a favorite childhood memory goes, I remember when I lived in New Jersey, that's where I was born, and my mom had brought me over to my quote-unquote Aunt Charlotte's house, and Aunt Charlotte was deaf. And so we were in her apartment, and we were there just visiting, enjoying um, some snacks, coffee, etc. And I remember sitting there on her couch, and this was probably back in the early 2000s, so perhaps 2002. And on her couch, I was sitting and all of a sudden the room just lights up where the lamp is flashing next to me, the TV is flashing. And I thought, what in the world? What is this? And she reaches for her remote and she presses a button and an interpreter pops up on her television screen. And of course, me being about 11 years old at the time, I was thinking, whoa, what is this? (laughs) So that was her video phone call. And back in the early 2000s, that's how deaf people were able to communicate on the telephone. So it was brand new technology at the time. In the early 2000s, video phones, or as we call them, VPs, were being installed in deaf homes. So that's how she was able to have access to be able to communicate via telephone. So I believe it was a call that came in and saying her prescription was ready for pickup at the pharmacy or something like that. So it's, uh, yeah, that was my first exposure to what's called video relay service. I have to admit that um, I obviously know very little about this topic and, and I'm very much happy to learn much more about, but you mentioned the flickering of the lights mm-hmm. and of the television. Explain yes. to us what that is, because that is an actual technique for something, right? It, it is yes. utilized for a very specific reason. Would you care elaborating? Sure. It's an alert. So instead of hearing the phone ringing, you can see the lights blinking. That's about it. I recently watched, not to compare in any way, shape, or form uh, in real life, but a movie called Coda. Um, mm-hmm. yes. was I. It's such a good movie, FYI, for anyone that's out there uh, listening. That's I don't remember where. I think it was on Apple TV, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And um, there is a, it, while it's very funny, a very funny moment, um, she uses, she, the daughter uses that to get the, her parents' attention. And she yes. rushes into the bedroom and she's flickering the lights on and off. Yes. And, 
that's how she gets their attention. So I, yeah, I that's part of deaf culture. That's how they do it at home. Um, that's where a teacher can flick the lights in the classroom to get the student's attention. Uh, a nurse walking into a deaf patient's hospital room can flick the light switch in order for the deaf patient to look toward the door. Wow. Just the simplest of things in terms of what one can do. It just, you enter a completely different world. With, the visual world. Yeah, the visual world. How amazing. Talk to us a little bit more about where you grew up and the community that sure. you were in. Sure, of course. So um, after that first experience with the video phone, um, it my mom had to sit down with me and talk to me about what that was. And she said, you know, the TTY that we have at home, that's older technology now. So to give you more detail about that, the TTY is a telecommunication device that deaf people use probably back to the 80s and the 90s. And it's pretty much obsolete at this point, but it's a teletypewriter system where the phone is cradled at the top of the device and uh, through different signals, it relays text messages. So that was the very early text messaging. And so we like to say, you know, the deaf people, um, the deaf community use text messaging first. And uh, so that was TTY. And I remember using it when I was little and deaf people would call our house in order to get a hold of my mom. And uh, I would have to type, uh, my mom's busy right now. This is Sarah, GA. And that means go ahead. So that way they knew that it was their turn to type. So, um, Yes. So that gives you a little bit of a window into the world before cell phones came around and how the deaf people would communicate with each other. So um, moving forward, as far as my life goes, um, we were, again, very involved in the deaf community, my mom and myself growing up. And then we moved to North Carolina when I was in elementary school. Later on, I was able to graduate from high school and move to Greenville, South Carolina, where I attended Bob Jones University. And my major was in English language and linguistics with a minor in teaching English as a second language. So I'm a language nerd through through and through. I love being able to talk languages and really dig into linguistics, et cetera. So my springboard into the interpreting profession was when I was a freshman there at Bob Jones University, and there were two deaf students who were there as well. Well, we happened to meet, and they said, oh my gosh, you sign? You're fluent? I said, yeah, you're deaf? What? So we were automatically friends, and through um, a bit of networking, I was able to get an interview with a CODA, which means child of deaf adults, meaning her parents are deaf, and certified interpreter who was there on the faculty. So she met with me and she said, oh, yeah, we could really use another in interpreter to interpret the classes here on campus. So she was able to train me and mentor me and work with me for three years. So from the time I was 17 years old to 21, I was interpreting college classes with the help of a certified team interpreter until she felt I was confident enough to go ahead uh, solo and interpret. So I interpreted everything from economics, college algebra, history. Um, Bible doctrines. I interpreted for football coaching, um, journalism, Photoshop, you name it. So that was really where I was able to jump in with both feet and learn vocabulary at the college level as well. And I was able to rub shoulders with other interpreters that were already working in the field. Once I graduated, um, that was 2012, 2013 was my year that I graduated and teachers were being laid off. So there was not really any teaching job available at that time. So the deaf community came to me and they were like, 
why don't you go interpret? And I was like, me, that's my mom's job. That's not my job. My, that's my mom's job. I, I, I'm just playing around with this whole interpreting thing. I'm not really serious about it. I'm getting my degree to go teach, maybe to go to a deaf school to teach English at, um, a residential school for the deaf is what I was thinking, but um, God completely changed my path to where I am now a certified interpreter. And um, my my husband also really championed the cause, and he said, you know, you should really jump into interpretation as your career. So I was able to start working with several different agencies as a freelance interpreter. I later got hired on at a huge hospital system as a staff interpreter. I did that for a number of years and then I joined a VRS company and I can talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but um, so total I've been in the chair for about 10 years. Talk to us a little bit about, let's go back a bit um, Mm -hmm. where your mom's interest came. How did, how did ASL come to be a part of, you know, your, your fabric part of your Sure. She fell in love with the language and decided to go to interpreting school. So we call that the ITP, Interpreter Training Program. And she started her ITP back in the 80s. And I believe she graduated 1987. And then she worked with VR, Vocational Rehabilitation, up in North Carolina. And she was a VR interpreter for a while. And then she met my dad. They got married. And I'm here. (laughs) So So she spoke... ASL to you. Is that how you were immersed? So it was a bilingual. Mm, Yes. So when my dad was away at work, um, she oftentimes would turn off her voice. That's what we call voice off. And she would just sign to me. And then my dad would come home and we'd switch back to English. Got it. Okay. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's an amazing way of, of immersing oneself in the language and being able to practice it, practice it in conversation. Now there was no need for you then to further your studying. So you didn't take ASL in Mm -hmm. high school or anything like that. I've actually never had a formal sign language class in my life. (laughs) So I've been to several hours, um, thousands and thousands of hours of interpreting workshops, mentorships, et cetera. So I definitely do have formal training, but not a college degree in interpretation. I found it interesting when you when you said that's my mom's job. So you mm-hmm. weren't ever really thinking about making this a no. profession. So you're like the epitome of the I didn't choose the profession. The profession chose me. <laughs> Correct. The deaf community recruited me into their interpretation pool. What did you see when you were going into the deaf community that really struck you? Um, you know, as opposed to growing up at home and and seeing your mom your mom do this as a profession, mm-hmm. but then really uh, sort of being a part of the ASL community or the deaf community. Excuse me. What what did you see that really struck you? What really struck me was the amount of oppression that the deaf community faces even today in 2023, but um, I started learning and seeing that in 2013 when I got my start in the profession. Um, oftentimes in the medical setting, doctors, nurses, medical staff in general don't understand anything about the deaf community and they will make assumptions and they will uh, try to plow forward ahead without considering nuances of communication um, that are really important to clear access. So that that's a very um, high level definition of my concerns, I would say. But I really got to see firsthand and the and witness the oppression 
that deaf people face on a day-to-day basis. So that was hard to see. Mm-hmm. And it still is. When you started I- interpreting studies, um, by now you, you're saying that uh, VRI was a thing, right? You, uh, you're already, the video phone, excuse me, was already mm-hmm. a thing. Uh, did you begin in that format or how did you start when you started uh, ASL interpreting? I started on-site interpreting with agencies. So they would dispatch me out to different appointments. Um, oftentimes it was physical therapy appointments or routine physicals um, before I really started handling the bigger cases such as surgical, labor and delivery, et cetera. Um, so I made sure to be cleared, so to speak, by my mentors that said, yes, you're ready to go ahead and handle those bigger cases. Um Then in 2014, I was hired by a VRS company, and I did full-time video relay service interpretation, and it was about 32, 36 36 hours a week that I was there interpreting phone calls. And so that is the equivalent of OPI Mm. for the deaf community. So there's no ASL OPI, which means over the phone interpretation, it's impossible because there's no screen to see each other. You have to have that visual component. Um, So Video Relay Service VRS is funded by the federal government, the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and they pay for interpretation for deaf people to have access to the telephone system. And so I did that for a number of years, loved it. And that's where I got to meet deaf people from all over the country because calls would come in at random from random places, from random people with random topics. So VRS interpreters have to be extremely fluent and really be able to handle any type of situation that comes up, including interpreting 911 calls. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, one call would be from New York, the next one's from Maine, the next one's from Texas and Idaho and Florida, Georgia, Alaska, Puerto Rico. And so it was all within the United States, but um, folks would call in who are deaf or hearing, either one, and we would connect the call and interpret between the two. I'm curious about how you handled uh, regionalisms, for instance. If Yes. How did you handle that? <laughs> So I love that you brought that up. Um, I actually used to teach a series of workshops called Hang Up Your VRS Fears. And that's be, that was a huge fear that a lot of interpreters had coming into video relay service interpretation is, oh my gosh, I'm not going to understand the regional signs because many people don't know, but sign language differs throughout the United States. I can probably meet someone and right off the bat tell, oh, yeah, you're from New York. I can totally tell you're from New York based on the way you sign. Um, For instance, there's four different signs for hospital depending on where you're from. Wow. And yes. So um, one time I remember getting a VRS call and the deaf person said, go ahead and call. And he used the letter H and tapped his forehead twice in two different locations of his forehead. And that threw me because here in my hometown of Greenville, South Carolina, we have a deaf man by the name of Henry and that's his name sign. And so I thought, call Henry. Well, you don't need me for that because he's deaf too. (laughs) That was my thought. And then I realized, oh, you're from the Northeast. You're from New England and you're wanting to call the hospital. So um, that's just a little bit of a, a glimpse into what regional signs can look like. But um, for instance, there's about 13 different signs for strawberry. There's about six different signs for pizza. Um, so yes, it just depends on where you live, different vocab that is, ex- exists throughout the country. 
Yeah, we can see how it's very much in that sense, similar to interpreting of spoken language interpreting as well. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't it doesn't change. Uh, I yes. want to go back a little bit to mm-hmm. to the conversation about you entering uh, interpreting. Share with us when once you first started, because I'm not sure at, at which moment your mentality changed with regards to mm-hmm. the profession. Right. When when did you no longer say that's my mom's job and say I'm I'm completely going to do this? What was your most memorable memorable moment while interpreting um, when you first started and began doing it professionally? Mm-hmm. I would say I began to identify as an interpreter once I signed on with agencies and started freelance work and they handed me badges uh, and that said, yes, you are now one of our interpreters. Here's your badge for our agency. And it became official. Were agencies, um, were they understanding how to assign ASL interpreters? And by that, I mean, you know, were, were they just a one-stop shop where, yeah, we offer interpreting services too? Or did you get a combination of things where you had agencies that did understand the need and the service that was needed and then others mm-hmm. that did not? Oh, that is a great question. We could probably have an entire podcast episode just on <laughs> that. Um, I Everyone makes mistakes. And looking back, I did sign on with two agencies that what we call in the industry spoken language agencies. And they did not verify any credentials from me at all. They just said, oh, you know, sign language. Okay, we're going to start sending you assignments. And I took that back to my mentors and I said, what do I do about this? And they said, well, it's your responsibility to accept and decline assignments that you, that, you know, fit your skill set. So I said, okay. Um, But then I saw a night and day difference working with an agency that was led and owned and operated by a sign language interpreter. So she was able to meet with me, see my skills, do like a screening with me. And she said, oh my gosh, I would love for you to be part of our team. Absolutely. And so she, based on knowing my background, could tell her scheduling team, okay, she can take like this grouping of assignment types, so to speak. So it was a more protected process where it wasn't just throwing me to the wolves, so to speak. It was, yes, um, it's a more controlled process of what assignments are best fit for your skill set. As the years went by and the more experience you got with ASL in interpreting um, or interpreting with ASL, what were you beginning to find out that was occurring in the field? Meaning, what was the need that you were identifying in the industry? Interpreters to be extremely fluent in sign language where receptive skills are sharp as well. So, for instance... With spoken language interpreters, from what I know from friends I have in the spoken language industry, um, oftentimes their L2, their second language, is English. And their first language is the foreign language, so whether it be Russian or Vietnamese, Italian. And it's oftentimes the opposite with sign language interpreters, where their first language is English and their second language is ASL. And the opportunity for immersion is extremely rare for immersion in the language. So if you were to go and say, oh, I want to learn Italian, maybe you would do um, a semester abroad in Italy, that kind of thing. 
and you would have a place to go where everybody's speaking Italian. You could experience that immersion, but there's no deaf country. There's no deaf territory. So it's impossible to really get that full immersion. So ASL interpreters have to be extremely aggressive and pursue those immersive opportunities, meaning going to deaf events or going to um, maybe a deaf summer camp or going to a deaf uh, weekend or, um, you know, going to a conference where there's a lot of deaf people. But those immersion opportunities are very short and very limited. So it's not like an entire month or an entire six months. It's maybe one afternoon or a couple of hours or a weekend. So the opportunity to get that immersion in the language is extremely challenging. So from that stems oftentimes ASL interpreters may be pretty good with signing. However, the receptive skills, meaning understanding deaf people's signs to them, can be a bit shaky. So that's something I learned getting into the field was, wow, this is a, a weak point for a lot of professional interpreters or really interpreters that are coming in um, and getting their bearings, you know, first and second year practicing. Um, so that's something that a lot of interpreters still are trying to work on is improving their receptive skills. You've done a lot of uh, workshops uh, to to basically get the word out on on a lot a lot of the things that a lot of the hearing community you know doesn't quite get right. What is what is one of your favorite workshops that you like giving out the most? Oh, let's see. Um, there was one I recently developed called Thirty Seconds or Less: Educating the Hearing Side. That's what it's called. I just launched it not too long ago. Um, I think it might be one of my favorites already, even though it's pretty new, because it offers a discussion for interpreters to get together and think, okay, what's my elevator speech? How can I quickly advocate someone in the moment? Because oftentimes, if you catch someone in the elevator, you only have 30 seconds to talk. And so that's that's my title of my workshop is 30 seconds or less. And catching the nurse in the hallway or when a teacher pulls you aside after the IEP meeting or whenever you're talking with a social worker uh, before the appointment begins and you're waiting for the deaf person to show up and they start asking you questions and you're like, ah, how do I say this in a concise manner that's professional, respectful, but gets the point across? And oftentimes ASL interpreters can struggle with the right verbiage um, and we don't really have a class for that, how to explain our profession in 30 seconds or less or explain our ethical boundaries or role boundaries in 30 seconds or less. So that is a workshop that I've put out there and I think it's become one of my favorites. <laughs> what, do, what do you feel people often get wrong about the uh, ASL community, Sarah? Um, so two, actually three things um, I've written down to share. First of all, American Sign Language is not English. Oftentimes people believe that ASL is just English on the hands, where like Morse code, where every symbol represents one letter or every symbol represents one sound. That is what sign language is. Unfortunately, that couldn't be further from the truth. So the grammar in sign language is actually completely backwards from English. And typically, sign, uh, sign language phrases are OSV, object, subject, verb, where the verb comes at the end of the sentence. And of course, English is not that way. So that's one thing I would definitely share. And oftentimes the adjective will come after the noun instead of before the noun. So instead of red shoes, it's shoes red. So that, those are very quick 
uh, small examples, but um, just to show that ASL is not English. But how does Oftentimes that, that really? In, mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry about that. How does yeah. that transfer in the like the interpreting world? So mm-hmm. when people say, you know, examples such as what that that they have that notion or that misconception <laughs> that oh, it, you know, ASL is English, right? Um, it can be really challenging on the advocacy front. So again, another healthcare example would be if a nurse were to say, okay, for your colonoscopy, here's the packet of information for you. Make sure to follow all the instructions before your colonoscopy to do the prep, and then you come in such and such a time for the procedure. Oftentimes, I'll have to step in as the interpreter and and shift my role to a bit of an educator advocacy role. And just say, hey, would you mind go over, going over these instructions so I'd be able to interpret for you? And they kind of look at me. And depending on who the consumer is, you know, oftentimes we want to um, empower the deaf consumer to be able to advocate for themselves. But there are times where we might need to be the person to speak up just based on some situations. So anyhow, um, that often throws the nurse for a loop because she's like, what do you mean? Uh, they can just read it, right? And then we're stuck in that moment where we're like, okay, well, what do we say? How, how do we handle this professionally? So oftentimes my go-to phrase might be, did you happen to know that sign language and English are completely separate languages? So this packet is in English. That's not the deaf patient's native language. Woo! And then everything stops. And then they start to reconsider. And then I ask again, would you mind reading off the instructions? And I'd be happy to interpret for you. Sarah, I'd like for you to share with us uh, the one story of your interpreting career that kind of shifted things for you. Um, and it had to do with someone telling you that uh, you were babying the patient. Would you would you mind sharing that story with us? So uh, once upon a time, I was in a medical setting and there was a surgical case where the patient was just coming out of anesthesia. And the patient's spouse was there as well. And discharge instructions were the last step to um, to complete that before the patient could go home. So the nurse was rattling through all of her to-do list, trying to get them out the door. Very busy, understandably. And the discharge information packet, she handed it to the patient. So she, she said, okay, well, go ahead and read that. Let me know if, if you have any questions. And the patient again, just coming out from under anesthesia, was not completely with it. And the patient's spouse just gave me a look and that said, okay, interpreter, can you please just handle this? And so at that moment, I felt, okay, they are both too tired and too exhausted to advocate in that moment. So they were relying on my expertise to be able to step up and and advocate in that moment to be very respectful and professional, but at the same time say, pardon me, nurse, would you mind reading the discharge instructions? And I'd be happy to interpret for you. I mean, again, just like the colonoscopy example I I had given earlier. And the nurse turns to me and she said, what, they can't read? That was extremely offensive. I was very taken aback. And of course, I'm interpreting the whole thing. So that way the patient and spouse can see the conversation. Well, the, the nurse leaves the room and per my uh, ethical role, I step out of the room and I'm there in the hallway. The nurse then walked up to me and she said something I'll never forget. She said, well, my husband's hard of hearing and he can read just fine. If you would stop babying them, then maybe they would actually learn to read by themselves. So that threw me 
Um, I had to make sure to react professionally and just nod my head because there was no way in the moment that I could convince her otherwise. And it wasn't my place to educate her in the moment. So anyhow, we finished up the um, assignment and they take off and, and head home. And immediately I went to my language services supervisor and I sat with him and I said, this just happened. This nurse was completely out of line. How, how do we handle this? What do I do? And um, so I was able to get some guidance and direction there and they were able to handle it internally. But, um, but yes, that was definitely an experience that was challenging at the time. Thank you for sharing that. And I think that that it gives us an example, not just of uh, what could potentially happen when you are out in the field, but also just a way of being able to handle it. Because I think sometimes our emotions uh, can get the best of us in the moment. Mm -hmm. And so being able to stay in our role, but not allowing that to continue potentially for another patient. And so you described how you were able to uh, go to your supervisor and and bringing it up. And hopefully yes. that was something that could be done. I mean, with at the very least, uh, some education to the medical staff, right? Yes, precisely. And that furthers the point of sign language and English being completely separate languages. It would, I, I would not be doing my job if I would have let it go that the patient discharge packet could just be, okay, read this and take it home, right? That that would be traumatic if any instructions in there um, were not followed and then what happens later with the patient. So I felt like it was my duty to say, okay, whoa, 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 we need to actually get this into ASL for clear communication. Um, there was another time, and this other point is extremely important, a lot of medical staff will think, oh, they can just read my lips. They can just write back and forth. No problem. We don't need an interpreter. That happens so, so often. Mm-hmm. I challenge you, if you were to sit with a deaf patient and they were to make phone calls to make appointments, um, the receptionist who answer the phone would probably be like, oh, you need an interpreter? What? We can't just write back and forth. You can't just read lips. Still, in 2023, that happens. Um, anyhow. There um, was a time where no interpreter was present for this patient's appointment, and the doctor had to resort to writing back and forth. And the doctor wrote down, it seems you're very emotional. Are you okay? And the patient wrote down, responded, yesterday, dad died. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. So then the doctor responds in English, writing down on paper, oh, that's too bad. Now, let's pause for a moment because the words too bad to a deaf person in sign language is extremely offensive in that moment because we only sign the phrase too bad, meaning, oh, too bad for you. Like get over yourself. Yes. So imagine that deaf patient in the moment reading those words on paper in English from the doctor that says, oh, that's too bad about her father passing away. So she stood up and walked away and never went to that office again. And of course the doctor's thinking, what what happened? What went wrong? Well, that was that's where cultural mediation and cultural brokerage had to happen. If I were to be interpreting in that moment, I would never have turned to the deaf patient and just rendered that phrase of, oh, too bad. No, I would interpret it with the cultural meaning of, I am so sorry, my my condolences, right? That That's what he meant. He didn't mean, oh, too bad for you. Wow. I mean, that that in itself, when you first had shared that um, pre-recording, to me, that 
that was something completely new as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I've had uh, individuals, guests here that I've talked about ASL and ASL interpreting, that was, you know, something very specific that I did not know and that I learned mm-hmm. thanks to you. Uh, sure. which is, yeah, that's something definitely a, a misconception that we have that, that because ASL is American Sign Language, we're thinking, oh, it's English, mm-hmm. right? What was that number two? Um, that sign language is a visual language, so we have to maintain line of sight at all times. For instance, now VRI, video remote interpretation, is such a big deal. However, technology can be a blessing and a curse for the deaf community. And that's because oftentimes the hearing community, the people that make all the decisions about the deaf community's access, don't fully understand that it's a visual language. So here's one story I'd like to share. There was a time where um, I was asked by a deaf friend to give to take her into the emergency room. I was completely off work. I was not on duty. <laughs> I made sure to wear jeans and a hoodie so nobody would think I was at work. So um, I we go get to the emergency room and she checks in at about six o'clock in the evening. And throughout that check-in process, she's trying to advocate and say, I need a sign language interpreter. So, of course, the receptionist is like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get you an interpreter. No problem. Um, We are once we call you back, we'll call the interpreter. So the deaf patient said, no, please call an interpreter now because we know it takes at least an hour for someone to physically drive here. And they're like, "Okay, well, we'll call you back later. We'll call you and, and we'll call the interpreter at that time. Well, we just weren't getting through this this nurse's head <laughs> that no you need to actually be proactive call the interpretation services now so that way they can coordinate and get someone here um and the reason why the patient was was there in the emergency room was a bit more serious so we understood that she would be probably not in an upright position the entire time she would need to be examined she'd need to be laying back on the exam table probably go for testing cat scan x-ray etc so um knowing that we kept trying to push for a live interpreter and what we we would say an on-site interpreter. So three hours later, finally, the patient's called back and uh, they say, okay, we're ready for you. And the patient says, where's my interpreter? And they say, uh, what? I am a deaf patient. I need a sign language interpreter. Well, we just went around and around and around again, and it took forever to finally get someone to understand. And then they tried to use me as the interpreter. Well, they don't know me from Eve, you know, like there, there's no way that they know my credentials. There's no way that they know. I mean, I could have been deaf too, because I, I had my voice off the entire time. I was, I was signing only just so that way they would see, no, they can't rely on me as an interpreter. So, but they kept trying to. So long story short, uh, finally, the patient is in the exam room and they wheel in the iPad. And after three hours of advocating for a live interpreter, they still wheel in an iPad. So here we go. So speaking of the point being that it's a visual language, she's there laying in the bed and they wheel up the iPad. And the question was, and I'll I'll filter that. Not that I was, not that it's confidential because I wasn't actually in my interpreting role, but um, the question was, do you want the medicine now or do you want the medicine after your test result comes back? The way the deaf patient answered was a slight nod of the head and then, or a slight shaking of the head back and forth, a slight shaking of the head and then signing the word accept. So the iPad interpreter um, responded with, I don't want to take the medicine. 
unfortunately, that interpretation was incorrect based on where the iPad was positioned in the room. So the iPad interpreter was not able to see on camera that she had shaken her head left and right, which negates the affirmative verb. So whenever she says the word accept, she was trying to say, no, I'd like to go ahead and accept the medicine. That's what she was trying to get across. I don't want to wait to take the medicine. I want to go ahead and accept and take the medicine now. So when I, when I was in that moment as an off-duty interpreter, I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? So I just put up my hand for a second. I said, interpreter, would you mind trying that again? And then I asked the deaf patient, hey, could you go ahead and sign that again? She, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she put out her answer again in ASL and the interpreter was able to catch it correctly and then move on. So that would have been really challenging. So that's that's one example of it being a visual language where a 2D screen with a camera that only captures a 2D image oftentimes can be not enough. And it really does render ineffective communication, which is an ADA a violation. So um, the ADA, American with Dis- Americans with Disabilities Act, is our go-to for any type of advocacy, any type of way to show, yes, it is federal law that deaf people who are not only a linguistic minority, but they are also identifying as folks who are disabled. So not only are we working on language accommodations, we're working with accommodations as far as disability accommodations, which taps into federal law. So anyhow, um, that's why VRI, video relay, video remote interpretation can be a blessing and a curse for the deaf community. Mm-hmm. Um, part two of that story is while we were there and the deaf patients laying down in the, in the bed, um, there was a response given by fingerspelling where the deaf patient was fingerspelling something, but her hand was too low that the interpreter couldn't catch it. So, so again, you only have this little box, this little screen, and the camera only catches so much. For spoken language, it doesn't matter where in the room that person is, it will catch everything auditorially. However, for visual communication, they're only limited to that one screen space. So if the deaf person's hands are off camera, the interpreter can't catch it. Yeah, they forget that they have to be in front because as an interpreter, we we understand, you know, where our mic needs to be. Then I'm talking spoken language, of course, where mm-hmm. our mic needs to be positioned, um, you know, what where we need to be centered in the in the camera, that if we need to catch someone's attention, it needs to go straight to the camera as a right. Like we we know that because this is what we're doing every day. But the 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 patient or the the person that's receiving the service is is speaking as they naturally would. I imagine, yes. right? And so, in the ASL case, the same thing. I mean, it it would be, uh, you know, the individual would have to have that presently in mind. Be very mm-hmm. conscious of the fact that, you know, they where is the camera on this thing, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Type of thing. So, right, wow, amazing. That I mean, that's. Already two things, uh, such great things that, I mean, there's so many other questions, but you did have a third one uh, yes. on your list. What's that? Yes. That um, people within the deaf community are not all the same. And so by way of explanation, sign language is actually a spectrum as far as what mode can be used in ASL. So if you look, if you imagine a spectrum from left to right, on the left side, you have what we call signed exact English, S-E-E, and then toward the middle, 
it changes into PSE, which is pigeoned signed English. And then all the way to the right is a more pure form of ASL, where it's ASL grammar, which we talked about earlier, being somewhat backwards and a lot of little, the little small words such as a and the, the articles and some prepositions, et cetera, are not part of the linear structure, um, the actual sentence structure. It's part of a spatial structure, which is a whole nother conversation. But um, if you get into the middle of that spectrum and then over to the left, it's more of a blended language between ASL and English. So it'd be somewhat like Spanglish, where you would mix Spanish and English where some of the grammar might influence how a sentence is structured or vocab might change accordingly. We have that also for sign language. And it really depends on the deaf person's age of language acquisition. It really depends on the deaf person's educational background, whether they were brought up in a mainstream school setting, which means educated within a hearing uh public school where perhaps they're the only deaf person in the entire classroom or it's a small group of deaf people in a huge hearing public school with an interpreter or sometimes without an interpreter, unfortunately. Um, And then you have the folks that come from the deaf school, um, the residential schools for the deaf, where K through 12, they are there on campus. They they live in a dorm throughout K through 12 and they go home weekends and summers. And so there they have a fully immersive environment where they have education and instruction in their native language of American Sign Language. So there's the there's those two groups of deaf people within the community and their language is different. Not 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 a completely different language, but how they sign and how they receive information is very different based on those two factors. Um, in addition, there's something called the small deaf community and the big D deaf community. <laughs> so we're getting into the nitty gritty here, but um, the big D deaf community, which means that they spell deaf with a capital D, they they actually identify as a cultural and linguistic minority group. Those are the ones that use American Sign Language as their primary mode of communication. That is their native language. And um, then you have the smaller D deaf community that might auditorially be deaf but they utilize hearing aids to and they they often resort to they often utilize speech as their way of communicating and they perhaps use cochlear implants and maybe they sign a little bit or they don't sign a lot uh, or they don't sign at all so that's the difference between the small d deaf community and the big d deaf community um so that being said how where they come from in that spectrum and with and what their own story and their own background is all dictates what their sign language looks like and how they receive information so we sign language interpreters have to code switch every single time we meet a new deaf consumer so what that means is when i go to a doctor's appointment or go to an iep meeting or go to a job interview what have you I have to meet the deaf person ahead of time as much as I possibly can and say, hi, what's your name? Where are you from? Deaf school or mainstream which? And so I ask them, you know, did you go to the deaf school growing up or did you, were you in the mainstream setting? Because that tells me a lot about their language and then I can interpret accordingly. I love how it's 
so different, but yet so the same, because I mean, in essence, what you're, what you're explaining is uh, having some context for the purposes of providing, you know, an accurate interpretation. So knowing who your audience is, knowing where they're coming from um, will help you better render, right. That interpretation, because obviously you, you, you're familiar or, or know at least what to expect. Um, It is said very much that there is a lot of similarities between your spoken language interpreters and your ASL interpreters and how Mm -hmm. there should be more of collaboration between the two um, specializations just so that we could work and learn from each other. And I know that Mm -hmm. in my personal experience, I absolutely found this to be the case, Um, not necessarily because I was looking specifically for similarities with the ASL interpreting um, industry, but because it just so happened that that this specific niche was the one that was putting out content that I needed. So I'm I'm talking about educational interpreting. Mm -hmm. And while there was a lot of there was a lot of things that were different, for instance, your spoken language interpreters in the areas of education are not in the classroom necessarily with the student. We are working more with the families of the students, so the parents or the family members, the guardians of the students, um, or the community as opposed to the student themselves. But yet, the educational interpreters, your ASL interpreters, understood the dynamics of working within the education industry and working with educational staff. And so a lot of the the rules that they had established easily transferred into, you know, uh, being able to provide some sort of structure for translation and interpreting services uh, for spoken languages in education. And there was a lot Mm -hmm. that I was able to acquire from the content that was pushed out from the ASL interpreting community in education, your educational interpreters. So there's obviously a, a lot there. And that was just one small example of things that I was able to compile thanks to the information or ASL that was already out. And I didn't even realize, to be quite frank, that I was reading content for ASL interpreters in education until it said something about um, RID and, you know, the, the, <laughs> the, the need for certification. And, you know, it started and I thought, wait a minute, this isn't for interpreters in education for spoken languages. And this mm-hmm. was way back when years and years ago, I know much better now, but in the beginning it was like, wow, there's so much stuff in here that can yes. support me in what I'm trying to establish in the school district. So uh, there's yes, definitely I love that. a lot of similarities. I loved it too. I was so grateful because I couldn't find anything for spoken languages. So thank goodness. Sure. For, yeah. Or educational interpreters that had already set the stage uh, for us coming in. Most definitely. In fact, recently the organization called NAIE, National Association of Interpreters in Education, published a new code of ethics for educational interpreters. So you might want to take a look. I most definitely will. Thanks for sharing that. Yes, because there's a lot to learn there. That's most that's most definitely true. We had a guest uh, not too long ago here uh, on the show that also spoke about uh, the need for for ASL interpreters and spoken language interpreters to get together and, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of 
find those similarities that can support each other. Us in the sense of uh, obviously learning more about the ASL interpreting community so that we can also help to to push the need for professional interpreters as opposed to you know the the experience that you shared with us just a moment ago right and oh well you you sign can you interpret for her mm-hmm. it's the same yes. thing that they try to do for you know your spoken language of course you speak the language uh, it doesn't matter that you're seven or eight you know uh mm-hmm. that movie by the yeah. way which i want to keep bringing back just because it, it's so like <laughs> It, it you know it's very related. There's a there's a moment in there. Have you watched it, Sarah? Yes, I think okay. three times. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I think I need to put it on my watch list again this weekend. The daughter is in the uh, cl- it's like they're in a clinical uh, appointment with the doctor, and she has to interpret for her parents, and it's the most so embarrassing. embarrassing. <laughs> very very personal between the so husband personal. and wife, her mother and father, and having to interpret that content. And if you notice, I'm not sure if it's captioned into English for non-signers to see, but only about half of the information was actually rendered. Really, from the doctor. Yes. So that's another instance. Oh no, you're right. Example. No. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's another example so... of if if you bring in a family member, especially someone who's a minor, there's no way that the entire message is actually clear in the next language. So um, if you look back at that section of the movie, you can see she only interpreted like half of it. That's right. And she added her own stuff in there. Um, of course, her her body language and her tone and delivery was not professional. Of course. I mean, she's a kid. So, um, yeah, that that's a great clip that it, I actually have referred to previously when with other conversations. I loved it so much because it I mean, it's a reflection in either, you know, whether it is ASL, uh, that being the case for this movie or spoken language. It's still it um, it highlighted the fact that these personal conversations and what that does to someone, whether they're a family member, whether they're teenagers or a kid or not it's just an uncomfortable feeling for them. And so mm-hmm. what ends up happening is, you know, those errors, those omissions, those mm-hmm. additions, those, you know, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, yeah. that movie was amazing. So let's get back to Sarah though. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> so what happens after a few years of interpreting uh, Sarah, there's, there's, there's a specific moment in your career where, mm-hmm. where things pivot and you go from, uh, trying to push against the current. And by that, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, that's teaching staff, medical staff, you know, situations appropriate for the, um, deaf community. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you make a transition in your career mm-hmm. that gives you more of that opportunity to, to teach and to deliver yes. the information more appropriately and more broadly, right? right. Sure. Talk to us about that. Okay, great. Um, after completing three years of full-time work with Video Relay Service, I got promoted to interpreter recruiter. So I was a national recruiter for this large company, and I was responsible for flying to different conferences and recruiting interpreters nationwide. So I got to meet so many people and just be so inspired by their own stories and how and what they're doing in the in the profession and the, the in the deaf community. So that being said, um, the opportunity I had to influence younger interpreters in the profession was wonderful because oftentimes it's very scary 
stepping out of their college programs into being a freelance interpreter, not knowing where to start or where to find consistent employment. They have to pay rent. They have to pay their student loans. What do they do now? And so I was able to become a mentor to a lot of those interpreters that I started recruiting. Perhaps their skills weren't sharp enough to be hired at that time, but I was able to mentor them on my own time, nights and weekends, or I was able to um, if the if a company if the company was running a program at that time, I was able to um, use time teaching workshops to interpreters that were new to the field. So that way, I could invest in them personally, share my story as well, and give them advice about what to do, how to sharpen their skills, and how to network, etc. So it has just been an amazing experience because without people pouring into me and leading me to next steps and teaching me about all the hidden rules in the profession that you don't learn from a book. All of those people pouring into me and um, helping me grow. Now it's my turn, right? I, I really saw that there's a huge need for interpreters. There's a shortage in the United States. We need more sign language interpreters. The deaf community are constantly screaming for more, more, more interpreters. And so now it's I feel it's up to me to be able to pass the torch in a way. And not that I'm done with my time interpreting at all, but I want to now pass along what I've learned to the next generation moving forward. So um, after four years of interpreting recruiting, um, toward the end of that time, I actually helped start a nonprofit organization. And I have two colleagues that are part of that. The three of us together are co-founders of ASL ACE, A-C-E, which stands for advocacy, communication, and education. And then moving on, from, so within that organization, we have a branch called ASL OWL, which stands for one-on-one -on -one workshops and learning. And because of our vision and passion to invest in the next generation and also in seasoned interpreters who want to sharpen their skills, we've launched launched this 501c3 organization and we have a website aslowl.org and we present those workshops online so they're easily accessible to everyone and we have a mentorship program specifically for sign language interpreters in education and there is a test assessment called the EIPA the educational interpreter performance assessment and it's graded on a one to five scale and for if you get a 4.0 or higher, it's considered that you're really sharp. You really can interpret well with a high level level of accuracy. And then 3.5 um, is kind of middle of the row. Like that's about an average score. So we really focus on mentorship based on the need. I mean, the the demand was crazy. I mean, right now we're seeking more mentors. We need more people, more deaf and hard of hearing mentors in addition to folks who are already certified or have an EIPA 4.0 or above. So shout out there. We're looking for mentors, um, but we need people to um, be committed to weekly meetings with these newer interpreters that are coming into the field and people that want to increase their EIPA scores so that way they can seek employment in the educational sector. So anyhow, um, that's one thing that we're doing. And then we're also offering a religious track, which means any interpreters in religious settings. So whether it be interpreting church services or interpreting for funerals or weddings or interpreting for um, maybe a conference where maybe a pastor or um, a minister is deaf and they want to attend a conference, there's a lot of jargon and a lot of vocab and a lot of um, concepts you have to handle differently. And there's no training out there for that at all. So ASL OWL now has the educational interpreter track and the religious interpreting track. And we're hoping to launch a national certification track later. So that way um, 
we can continue to to do that great work. That's phenomenal stuff. I mean, yeah, Thank even you. those Thank specializations, you. I think, are most definitely something that it's a very specific niche, uh, you know, and and but you found that, that it is a need. Um, so that is great stuff. You did talk about something uh, just a little bit ago that I'd like to talk a little bit more about, and that is the mm-hmm. national shortage that yes. uh, there exists currently. And I and yes. I posed before pre-recording quite a naive question, I'm sure, but nonetheless, I, I feel like when we're talking about uh, ASL interpreting and understanding, um, you know, a little bit more about it. It's even these questions potentially could be someone else's questions. In spoken language interpreting, uh, in order Mm -hmm. to, I imagine it's in order, but there might be other reasons, but in order to cover the demand um, that is coming into these agencies, there is a lot of offshoring. Does that exist for ASL interpreting? No, it does not. And the reason the reason for that is American Sign Language is unique to the United States. And there are other countries that do utilize ASL as well, but you, sign language is not universal. So if you look in other countries like Italy or Japan or Germany, they have their own sign languages. There's Venezuelan sign language and German sign language and Italian sign language and Russian sign language. They're all different. And British Sign Language is actually completely different from American Sign Language. So if I were to fly to London today and meet a deaf person from London, I would have a completely different signing system than they do. Even the alphabet is different. So based on that, the need and demand for American Sign Language interpreters usually stays pretty close to home. And it's not offshore resources that assist with that demand at all. There are some times where a sign language interpreter might move out of the states, perhaps um, due to uh, moving for the military or who knows, but perhaps they're moving away and they say, oh, I want to do some virtual interpretation while I'm out of country. Depending on some rules and regulations from VRI companies, they might allow that. It's pretty rare that they allow it, Um, but that might be one case or two cases I've ever seen in my career that happened. So, no, offshoring is not something that we handle. Everything is usually um, within our nation. Talk to us more about the shortage. How can people be able to begin even finding out more about utilizing you know, their, their other language, ASL, Mm -hmm. as an interpreter, how does that begin? Well, I would definitely recommend joining the local organization in your state. So RID, the Registry of Interpreters for the Deaf, has about 50 state chapters throughout the nation. So my home state is South Carolina, and I am a part of South Carolina Registry of Interpreters for the Deaf, SCRID. And I have actually been a part of their board of directors for a number of years, just rolled off my vice president position. And they're a great group of people that a new aspiring interpreter can connect with and say, hey, can I find a mentor? Or can you tell me what workshops are available? You can become a member for a very small price per year and be on the email list. And you can also ask, what are the different training programs available near me? So perhaps there's an ITP, meaning a two-year or four-year degree in sign language interpretation that you can enroll in, and you can start there. 
Um, once you finish your college degree in sign language interpretation, then you most likely will move on to an internship phase where you can observe interpreters actively working. You can get what we call hands-up time, which means actual practice time in the hot seat where you can handle interpretation in a supervised manner. So you have a certified interpreter there with you just to catch you as the safeguard if needed. Um, so interpretation opportunities, excuse me, internship opportunities. And from there, really networking is key. So who you know, um, who can introduce you to agencies that are looking for interpreters and overall jumping into the deaf community and making sure that you really have close ties with the deaf community. So make friends that are deaf, go to deaf bowling night, go to deaf game night, go to uh, the deaf school and be there and volunteer, you know, things like that you can do to immerse yourself in the deaf community to be able to gain fluency. What are some of those things that you like to share with uh, the hearing community about whether it's ASL interpreting or the deaf community, what is, what are those Mm -hmm. things that you would like to make sure that you share with us that we should know? Sure. Um, Definitely make sure that whatever sign language interpreters you use are credentialed and adding to after an ITP student graduates and does their internship, the ultimate goal for them is national certification. And that is board exams that you have to complete. And there's three different sections of the board exam. So you've got the the knowledge section, the ethical section, and the performance section. So and and once you're nationally certified, then you're able to, you know, be permitted to interpret in any setting. So that's pretty much your golden ticket once you get nationally certified. Um, but as far as takeaways for today, I would really like to share um, if anyone out there is an agency owner, I would really encourage that agency owner to partner with a sign language agency, someone, a, a entity, an entity that is owned and operated by a certified sign language interpreter or a deaf person um, or someone within the deaf world to be able to refer work back and forth or be able to even partner up in some way so that you do have a, a representative of the deaf world as a part of your team. Because it is very easy just to think, oh, we can just easily add sign language to our list of languages that we offer. But that's really dangerous because there's so much in the unknown uh, about visual language, like we're talking about today, that really has to be handled by a professional that's in that space. So I would really implore any agency owners or any language managers out there uh, to make sure that you have within an arm's reach an ASL professional that can advise you, that can be a part of your team and can help you make business decisions that impact the deaf community in a positive way and not further their oppression. Um, And that actually reminds me of how I joined my current organization and about my current role that I'm serving in today. So the company I love and that I work with now is Acorbi, A-K-O-R-B-I, Acorbi. And they brought me on almost two years ago because they recognize, oh, we added ASL to our list of languages, but that's a whole nother world. We had no idea of really what is what we we don't know what we don't know, so to speak. And that said, they were able to bring me in. And I said, my first order of business is I really need to request that we hire a deaf employee. And they said, yes, we're going to do it. So we have a deaf employee as a part of our team. And 
now we have a, a dispatcher, a coordinator who is a sign language interpreter herself, and she's just so skilled with being able to dispatch interpreters out across the 50 states. She really knows what she's doing, and she's a great advocate, too. Um, so a Corby was able to see that and be able to be proactive and be able to say, okay, we're going to do it right. We're going to bring in the deaf community bring in the ASL professionals to be able to handle that department and to be able to run it as an ethical sign language interpreting agency. So that's great. I love that. And um, I even furthermore, I love the way a Corby has come to be because the founders, Claudia and Aza Mirza, they have a son who happens to be deaf. And that, re- that story really got to me because I thought, okay, if their son is deaf and they are the ones who have spearheaded this company for so many years, they have a reason why. They, they, that's their why is wanting to maintain um, clear communication for deaf people across the globe, really, uh, because their son is deaf. So they have that connection and that understanding how clear communication and access for the deaf is really important. So anyhow, um, that's... That's one takeaway I would definitely say is key. Wow, so much to learn. I've definitely have learned so much in such a short period of time. And I hope that those listening and watching have also learned quite a bit. Uh, before we get to the closing of our episode for today, Sarah, I'd like to ask you ask you just a couple more things. Sure. Um, one of those being, if you were to recommend anything to the new generation of ASL interpreters, what would you recommend to them now that you've had the opportunity to be in the field for a number of years, both, mm-hmm. you know, as the uh, freelancer working with agencies and now recruiting themselves and mm-hmm. mentoring them, what would you recommend to the new generation of interpreters coming into the industry? I would certainly say diversify as much as possible across the different specialties because you never know where life takes you. And I've met some people that say, oh, I'm an educational interpreter and that's all I want to do is just education. But things could take a turn. Perhaps the student moves and is no longer at that school or perhaps um, the you need to move and then there's no deaf student anywhere to be found. Um, you know, so that can be challenging or perhaps the student graduates and now you're out of a job, right? So you need to diversify in order to make yourself marketable across several different specialties. So for instance, um, I would definitely recommend to everyone to be a part of virtual interpretation in some way, whether it be VRI or VRS. Those are very different, as we had explained before. Um, video relay service, VRS, VRI, video remote interpretation. It all depends. That it, The difference is who pays for it. Is it the federal government paying for the phone calls or is it the private entities paying for uh, conversations where two people are in the same room, so to speak? So anyhow, um, I would definitely encourage folks who are new interpreters to explore all different types of interpretation um, and to really engage with the deaf community to build that fluency, find a mentor, learn as much as you can, go to workshops as much as possible, um, be fluent in financial jargon as well. You would be surprised how much finance comes up, um, whether it's, you know, being interpreting in the social security office where they're talking about their bank accounts and about their their monthly income, et cetera, um, whether it's interpreting for um, 
a job interview and now they're talking money, right? Like how do you handle the financial conversations? And oftentimes that's overlooked. So I would say, listen to finance podcasts, listen to um, as much as you can in the business world, you know, any business jargon that you can pick up. So we're not only sign language interpreters, we are also English interpreters. We tend to forget that sometimes. So we really have to stretch and broaden our English vocabulary in order to um, be successful in a lot of different areas. Great recommendations. Thank you so much for having shared those. Lastly, Sarah, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do? Okay, sure. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. My name is Sarah Braswell Baker, NIC. That is my LinkedIn name. And you can also send me an email at sbaker, B-A-K-E-R, at acorby.com, A-K-O-R-B-I, acorby.com. And um, we also, which are in the show notes, I believe, the landing page for our ASL team. Um, We also have a YouTube video there that showcases our ASL team. And you can see who we are, a little bit more about Acorby's story. And um, yeah, I think that would be the best way to connect. Wonderful. Anything else that you would like to make sure that this audience uh, hears uh, before we conclude today's episode, Sarah? I would just say thank you so much for being open-minded and thank you to you, Mireya, for hosting this podcast. I think it's so important to bring all languages together to, to be able to support each other and more specifically be able to advocate for each other too. Um, one last final memory I want to share is I was in a medical setting again where I normally am and I saw that a patient who spoke another language was struggling through without an interpreter and I believe the language was Russian so I approached the nurse and I said pardon me don't you have a language services team oh yeah yeah I, it was just a really short conversation blah 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 and I said well even for the short conversations it can be very important to have a sign language or have a Russian interpreter there uh, to make sure that nothing is missed. And she stopped for a moment. She said, you know what? You're right. You're not, you are exactly right. I could have easily picked up the phone. I could have easily grabbed the iPad for the Russian interpreter, but I didn't because I was just too busy. I didn't think about it. And I just had to go, go, go. And so if we could advocate for each other, wherever we are, whether it be in a school hospital setting, um, a job setting, um, maybe working in a warehouse and they hire a deaf employee and, you know, just make sure that your eyes and ears are open to where communication is barred and you can assist with breaking down those barriers. And I think that we can begin even just by uh, having someone like you, Sarah, join this platform and and being able to share not just your story, but more information for, for us that, that really don't really get it from anywhere else. So I'm so happy that we had the opportunity to connect and happy that you decided to come on this platform to share your story and to share all of the amazing information that you shared with us today. So thank you again for being here. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website, brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the connect with me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.